0: Okay, now it's recording, recording. started. There you uh, go. I'm so sorry. Okay, right. Let, 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 let me start again. Uh, well, that was really amazing. I absolutely loved all of that, but- uh, It was okay. good. All right. Le- le- at least again. we have the memories. Exactly. We're going to start again. Okay. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Web3 Leaders podcast. I'm Colin Fitzpatrick. Thank you so much for joining me. And today I'm delighted to have on a friend of mine and a super all round nice guy, Gordon Einstein. Gordon and I uh, connected many, many times over our years in Dubai doing the conference circuit. Gordon is a uh, lawyer by trade, but he's been working in crypto for a very, very long time. Uh, Gordon, welcome to the podcast and thanks for joining me. I'm honored to be on. This
1: is an unexpected pleasure, but it's good that we're both like flexible and adaptable. That's, that's That's, That's how we win.
0: This is exactly it. I mean, maybe it was meant to be because I had a cancellation today. Right this morning, one of my guests cancelled on me. And right away, I had another message from you going, hey, I've just started a YouTube channel. Will you follow me? I said, hey, me too. And uh, why don't you Mm -hmm. come on today? And a couple of hours later, here we are. So I'm, I'm super excited to have you because this is something that um, I think a lot about, talk a lot about, and it's really good to nerd out and have these conversations with you as someone who is a professional in the field, one of the very few people I've seen that is very deep in Crypto Web 3, advising clients, strategizing, all that sort of stuff. And uh, yeah, maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about your background and, and what got you to where you are now.
1: Sure. So in extreme summary... Um, I was originally a corporate tax and business planning attorney. I did that for several years, but then I got the technology bug. So I stopped practicing law to start my own tech company and was doing that for about a solid 10 years, then through pure chance. And it's a good story, but I'll spare you. It's a story for another time. Um, it's a really good story. I came across blockchain, Bitcoin, and crypto in general in 2014 in Odessa, Ukraine of all places. Wow. Yep, it's a great story, just not for this one. Um, okay. But uh, it took me a while to understand it, you know, because I wasn't at that time a technology head. Now I've sort yeah. of trained myself. It took me a while to understand it, but when, when I finally understood what it was about, I like everyone else who's in this industry. I had some you know, thunderclaps in my brain, some lightning. And I said, and I had two related revelations too. The first revelation is I call it the basic one. And then I had the sort of the esoteric one. The basic revelation was that if I went back into the practice of law and chose to focus on blockchain and crypto, I'd be one of the first attorneys to be in this area. And there, mm. there was an opportunity here because everyone I was meeting who was in this, in this industry was under the illusion that law did not apply that regulation did not apply. And I have to laugh, ha, ha. You know, and I was, I was like, okay, you know, at some point the hammer going to come down. You know, if I can save some of them, this would be a good opportunity. That was an okay revelation, but I had actually left the practice a lot because there's some elements of it I didn't like. At least in my second revelation, which was much stronger, um, I saw that through blockchain and crypto and these sort of related suite of ideas that the application of law the practice of law the court system could be made far more fair efficient timely and you could even enable new law so whether it's the record-keeping capacity of blockchain the trustless nature of it the way that smart contracts can operate globally with a sort of one jurisdiction if you like i, I saw that law itself could be massively reformed through the application of these technologies and, and then when that revelation occurred um like the sun, the sun broke through the clouds. I said, I need to go back and practice law. I need to go in this area, and I need to both work with clients, but I need to advocate and educate on these topics. And I, I, I always joke: for a U.S. attorney or U.S.-based attorney to stop practicing law because they don't like it, and then go mm. back into law later, yes. is sure. the equivalent of you know, it's like Shawshank Redemption. It's it's like <laughs> equivalent of escaping from prison. Through a, <laughs> through a shitty tunnel. Getting out in the rain and then going, you know what? I think I want to go back in because I miss the food and I miss my cellmate. And then checking yourself back <laughs> later. So I, I did, I did, I did
0: insanity, my friend. It's
1: insanity. And, I, I and what the, was I it that pushed you away. out of
0: the practice in the first place? And, and and how do you think it's different in what you're doing now? And maybe you talk a little bit about sure. what you're specifically. So. Doing now. Uh, also, I mean, to, to be totally straight and honest
1: about it, there was a personal maturation process that needed to happen. Um, mm. You know, just to that's that's a whole other story that we can talk about, and you know, maybe get a little bit more personal. But when I initially was practicing law, I found it very to be very uptight. I thought that lawyers yeah. were jerks. I thought that their hourly rate was ridiculous. Uh, I thought that the court system and the court environment was punitive. You know, the, with mean judges who are just trying to mess mess with you and at that time i had this is a big thing at that time i had an extreme phobia of public speaking like oh know, wow every time yeah it's a complete i I'm sorry just
0: just to stop there because uh gordon i is, know i know if not one of the best speakers on the circuit which me and him did a lot in dubai he's an incredibly engaging funny and uh, yeah, just awesome sort of presenter and head of the show. So, how did you get from sort of one side to the other?
1: Actually, you know what? It, it's I, I think it'd be good for your audience to understand because maybe someone in the audience can relate to this. Sure. So when I like, I'm, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be vulnerable. Um, so w- <laughs> when I grew up, the you know rough family situation. Uh, I had a, a stutter, a speech impediment. Uh, it was probably psychological, to be honest, not necessarily physical. And every time that I had to speak in front of a group, I always felt there was intense hostility from that group, you know, like I was a weird one. I couldn't speak, uh, adrenaline dump. It was just terrible. And, and, and actually there was one time I, I was in the boy scouts, I got in front of the whole group to give a presentation of a bash to someone else. And I just completely stuttered. I couldn't do it. And I remember all, like it was room full of adults staring at me and it was just like all this trauma associated with public speaking, just terrible and when I would do business networking events later as a professional adult, and we'd go around the room slowly introducing ourselves, as it got closer to my turn to introduce myself, I would just, my blood pressure would go up. It was just massively bad. And I, what I did to address this in part early on is I started to host social events. I had something called Happy Hour Mafia in Los Angeles. And it was my social hack because, you know, if you attend an event, it's hard to meet people it was hard to meet people if you were me, but if you host or organize the event, you have a good yeah. excuse to talk to everyone. You can say like, Hey, are you having a good time? So I started that and I, I gradually acquired some social skills. This is before I started back practicing law. Now, when I went to Odessa and I discovered blockchain and crypto, and I realized I needed to work to, to change the law and to work with regulators and to do all this stuff, I was like, you know, I just need to address this personal deficiency. This is this is a weakness that's been with me for generations, you know, longer than uh, I think a lot of your listeners were alive. And I was like, I, I just got to kill this. I got I got to kill it. I got to kill it yeah. now. So I put myself in every public speaking opportunity I could, and it was terrible in the beginning, with my heart, you know, beating and everything else, and sweats and stutters and nervousness. And I would prepare for days and get on stage and you know, e could buy. And then, I guess a couple of things happened. I, number, number one, I you know every it's like I it desensitized me to the fear by just being on stage, okay. And I got more social and like you know suddenly it shifted from terrible fear to like roller coaster fear. You know when you're on a roller coaster and you know you're safe, but they're like there's a simulation of danger, so it's like it's like a fun kind of adrenaline. Sure. I, I suddenly switched to that, and all of a sudden I was like, wow, I like being on stage. And then I decided, you know. I may or may not be smart, but there's a man in my mouth who says things who's very smart. So, okay, I don't you know, like half the stuff that comes out of my mouth, I swear, there's a little man in my mouth who's like got a PhD in law and science and everything in history and economics. And then after it comes out of my mouth, I'm like, oh, that was smart. So I learned to trust the little man who lives in my mouth and just let him talk. That's um, awesome. I, I know that sounds funny. And the what also happened is, I I re-examined my prior relation to law. And I realized I was looking at it from a childlike perspective of like the mean adults picking on, Uh. bullying me, the innocent kid. It was a a juvenile point of view. And it was the same, you know, the reason I was afraid of going to court at that time was like, you know, I had this juvenile idea of like, you know, these are the adults who know what they're doing and I'm just some kid who's going to get yelled at. What happened is I started doing deals and I started going up against other lawyers. And I started to realize that they were wrong often. Or full of it or lying how uh, so um you know some lawyer was blustering on something i'm like that's not what the contract says the contract says this sure he's like what we about and instead of admitting he's wrong he's trying to cover it i'm like you're lying you know it's like and my justice oriented brain once i realized that people are just being jerks and don't really know what they're talking about a lot of them we'll talk about regulators in a minute <laughs> and it's like my, you know, then I guess my adrenaline, my, my, you know, before my fight or flight before my flight response was kicking in. But I, I'm like, look, I'm six, two and a half. I'm bigger than you are. I do jujitsu. My mouth works. <laughs> I know the law. Who do you think you got you nothing to be scared of? <laughs> it, 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 it's like, you know, I will, I will intellectually crush you yeah. if you come after my client this way. And I'm going to do it in public in a way that's going to destroy your reputation. You are wrong. Opposing counsel. Okay? Yeah. You know, like don't, don't mess with my client. And I, it's like, you know, and they'll try to stare at me. I'm like, are, are you on drugs? It's like, you're, you you can not physically hurt me. Believe me, don't even try.
0: So it's like, and and, you know, and Is there a difference between uh, your experience about practicing, advising, strategizing around law in mm-hmm. web three versus in everything else? I guess I was on a rant there for a while, but you know, I, I, maybe, <laughs> maybe your audience can
1: relate. L- listen, I, I, I just want to finish this other idea. You know, yeah. if you're in the audience watching this and you have nervousness about public speaking or about social interaction, the, the don't, don't be afraid. Everyone does. I'm like an extreme case. Just gradually push yourself. Like I'm pushing my fiance, and she's really taken to it. Okay, and you know, it just it's it's fantastic to see. You can't influence people at scope at scale unless you either a write or b speak. Mm. You got, if you care about changing the world, you need to do one the other or both, ideally both. So if mm. you're watching this and just take it from me, I'm being, I didn't expect the conversation to go this way, but I'm just telling you, if you're watching this mm. and you're a little nervous about speaking or you're an introvert, I'm an introvert also, okay, I, you know, my native default mode is I like reading and just being alone. But if you want to change the world, it's good to learn these skills and you have nothing to be afraid of. So just, just push. So, okay.
0: Public service announcement is over. What what was the question? (laughs) Um, I suppose my question was having practiced law in the traditional uh, world and now come into Web3, do Mm. you see any major difference? I mean, and the the reason I asked that question is, and I'm sure it's different from law to what I do, but Mm. I love working in Web3 because I find everyone very open, welcoming, happy to help each other largely non-competitive. I mean, I come from a world of tech and big companies like Oracle and Salesforce and Dell, where even in your own company and team, everyone's fighting so much and it's ultra-competitive. And in the world of Web3, I can go out there to the market to a competitor that does exactly the same Mm -hmm. thing as we do. And we just go, hey, let's find a way to work together. I know this guy can help you out. And, And that's what I really love about the industry. It's so early. It's so new. Everyone's trying to figure it out. And everyone's being extremely helpful and welcoming towards, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. But I know law is different. So is there any crossover (laughs) there? I'm
1: down with the idea of collaboration. And I one thing I didn't like about law that I think I learned a good lesson, and I'm not that kind of lawyer. Is I, I, I'm the lawyer that comes in to make a deal happen. I'm a deal maker, not a deal breaker. I'm the, I'm yeah. here to find a good solution. I'm here I'm here to listen to the other side, unless they're like lying or trying to hurt my client. Like what I was talking about before, someone being mm. immoral or aggressive or whatever. But if they're if they're someone with an opposing point of view, but they're being honest about it, I'm almost always trying to understand where they're coming from and usually it's my client who needs to put their guns away and, and listen. And, and I, I think I'm pretty good at that. It, you know, is web three more collaborative than everything else a bit, I guess a bit, but you know, everyone's collaborative when it's $10,000 and they are suddenly less collaborative when it's $10 billion. So you need, to, you need to, you know, there's a special good fences make good neighbors. You know, yeah. if, you, if you are gentle and professional and diplomatic, but you put the right legal guardrails in place on relationships, it solves a lot of problems later. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, you, you gotta watch out for that we're all buddies mentality, because if you're starting a company and suppose you have a coder, contribute contributed code, the, and, then, and then you form your entity, what's that person, an independent contractor or the employee, or are they a partner? Well, if, they're not, if there's not a formal contract in place and they're not an employee, they're an independent contractor, and the code that they contributed is their property, you may have a license to it, but it's theirs. It's called the work for hire doctrine. And that applies almost all over the world. So there's lots of situations where founders and almost founders and almost founder vendors get together, make something happen. And they, they get into these huge legal fights later because they weren't clear about their relationship. So I think in terms of mentoring each other and communications and brainstorming, it's all good. Mm-hmm. But when you're trying to build something, you, you, I mean, you just... You just need to think about what you're doing. And, and law does apply. And you want to get a lawyer who, again, it's a deal maker, not deal breaker. but it, it makes everyone happy later, just being real clear.
0: So what about the fact that there are so many gray areas in the world right. of, of Web3, of crypto, and even things like, you know, NFTs, which i have got a little bit of experience about. There is so much, you know, uh, there's no precedent. You know, people are trying to figure it out. It's just not black and white. And what are the main set of areas that you're seeing at the moment that are either causing trouble now or will uh, be very problematic into the future?
1: Sure, it's a a great question. So let me just tease out one thing. There is law and there is precedent. Because take NFTs, for example. Take art NFTs. Hmm. The primary area of law that that engages is copyright. Copyright is the protection of, of creative works of writing or painting, or sculpture, stuff like that, as opposed to say a design, which is a patent, or a name, which is a trademark. So, when you have art that's being turned in, into an NFT, you're, you're primarily engaging in copyright law transactions. And within copyright, there's a the concept of licensing. Okay, you know, if someone created a digital work and they allow NFTs to be made of that digital work by someone else, they're usually licensing that d- digital artwork to that vendor for a particular reason. And there's plenty of law out there on copyright. There's statutes, written code law, and there's interpretive cases out there that go to these issues. And even if there's nothing specific on NFTs, there's things that are like NFTs that the law has been applied. And your job as a lawyer is to look at that prior pres- to look at the law, to look at the precedent, and say, how does this apply given the new facts and circumstances? Which which isn't a new thing. Law is always about. Technology advancing and changing, society advancing and changing, and how do you apply these prior principles to this new situation? And do these prior principles still apply in the same way or at, at all? It's that, that's actually the need part of law. Law evolves based mm. on certain axioms or you know core ideas. You have your first principles of law, you know, like you know ideas of equity and justice and fairness, and then from that you can extrapolate to policy, and from that you extrapolate down to law, and you kind of go from there. So we're we're not we're not in a completely fresh area. Now, of course, there's newness, and you can mm. argue things, and there's unresolved issues. And your your point's well taken. There, there's gray areas. And we just saw today all the video uh by the way, if everyone watching this, we're recording this on April 19th, 2023. You may be seeing this later. So yesterday, I think Gary Gensler, who at this moment is still chairman of the SEC in the USA. Got grilled by a congressional committee in the United States and could not give a clear answer on whether Ethereum is a commodity or security. And he was blatantly and visually evasive,
0: evasive. As he was physically his hands were going like this, and he clearly would not answer the question. Yeah, yeah he was and a hostile think- witness to the elected representatives, other
1: people who he serves. Uh, Okay. I'll say that again. He was a hostile witness. Okay. To the elected representatives of the people he serves. Okay. It was a completely inappropriate mode of behavior. It was evasive. It was manipulative. It was disingenuous, clearly. Okay. And and this is the U S government. Doing this. Mm. I haven't really ever seen anything like this. Other I've seen witnesses before Congress when they're not in a government role but I see a, a chairman of a so the way the SEC is structured in the US it, it's not an age, it's not sorry, it's not a department, it's an independent commission. Okay, security exchange commission. Okay, and which means there's no, there's no boss. There's a there's a committee or commission of five members. The majority of those, I think it's five, the majority is the party that's in power. Uh, appointed by the party in power and the minorities, you know, the other one that's not, and then they have a chairman. So, you know, he, and the SEC is given vast latitude. It's basically an independent agency of the U S government. It doesn't really belong to any other department. It doesn't answer. And that's because its function is so important and it has a great history. And even though I've been a critic of it for time, it's really something quite innovative that the rest of the world copies. And to see this behavior you know, it's you can go be on YouTube today. It's it, watch it. It's 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 shocking to see mm. what happened, and it, it's interesting. I mean, I'm cur- I'm curious when your show airs whether he'll still be chairman because there's yeah. law being proposed to remove him as chairman. Mm. That's I don't think it's ever happened before. Crazy, right? That's pretty wild. Well, uh, I'm sorry, but we think, we, think we about can... it. you you're, you're, you're some poor token issuer mm. trying to figure out what to do wanting to operate in the United States, and you can't get a clear answer mm. at all, whether something is
0: a commodity, a security, or a Coca-Cola model. But, but the this, thing this you're talking about, me, how are you
1: supposed to operate?
0: Exactly, I mean, this to me just shows you've got countries like the UAE, uh, where, where we live. There is uh, maybe the UK, there's a couple of others that are being quite open mm. and welcoming. And then the us that is just doing everything in its power to not welcome it uh you've got policy being made by people who don't understand it probably don't want to understand it and like we talked about earlier i mean i wrote about this warren buffett comes out and calls calls Bitcoin rat poison. And yet he's off selling all his bank stocks right now. And I mean, the guy was 65 before the internet came anywhere. I just I just don't think he even can. But uh, you know, there's a great phrase, which is it's hard to make someone understand something when their paycheck Demands that they don't. I was about it. to say that, but you beat me. You beat me to it. <laughs> yeah, you beat me to it. Exactly. <laughs> well, okay, uh, not not for Warren Buffett, but plenty of other people. Okay, Elizabeth mm-hmm. Warren. I mean, I actually used to be a really big fan of hers, but she's just, you know, she she her, her everything in her is invested in just keeping the system that is there. And let, uh, we'll just, talk about Bitcoin the in, 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 exactly, but we'll we'll, we'll we'll talk about this in a minute. Michael Saylor, who's one of my favorites. I mean, he used to be anti-Bitcoin until he sort of went in and and, and learned it. You can't learn Bitcoin. You have to live it. You know, it, it, it takes a lot of time. Um, and now he's, you know, the biggest proponent where he made someone else CEO of MicroStrategy and mm-hmm. he just goes full time. You know, my uh, my goals is to have him on this podcast one day. But uh, he talks about wh- where this is going. He talks about how it's because he's a complete maxi. Obviously, it's 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 Bitcoin and then, you know, 20,000 unregistered securities. Where do you see that going? What's the exact question? What, what well, think, it, it, he, he thinks that they'll, they'll pass laws to make all uh, other cryptocurrencies unregistered okay, I, I securities and sure. they'll all die. Okay.
1: So you're, you're asking me a question. And th- th- this is my specialization. I'm, I'm the guy who looks at cryptos or yeah. altcoins and decides what they are legally based on precedent, based on law and based on precedent. The um, law of the U.S. was reasonably clear. Okay, you have the two key laws in the U.S. You have the Securities Act of 33 and you have the Th- Securities Exchange Act of 34. Both of them have a Section 2. And I think it's Section 2B in each of them because Section A is like the, the mandated of the, of the SEC. And that's a definitions Section. I think it's 2B1 in both of them. And the first definition is the definition of security. And in that definition, there's a laundry list, like, you know, share, stock, bond, debenture, blah, 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 blah. And there's also a category called investment contract. Investment contract is a bucket so that if you, if something is a security, but doesn't fall into one of the categories, you look at this bucket and decide, well, even though it's not technically a debenture or bond or whatever, is it an investment contract and. Even though these laws were passed in thirty six and sorry thirty three and thirty four, the determinative case about what makes an investment contract an investment contract I think was passed in, was uh, went to the Supreme Court in nineteen forty six I think, and it's SEC versus Howie. They came up okay. with a four prong test about whether or not something a contract is in fact an investment contract and therefore a security. And there's been lots of law or in lots of cases based on Howie, trying to ferret this out. You know, it's like, is there an investment of money in a common enterprise with an expectation of profit where the F results are through the efforts of others? Those are the four prongs. And you can apply that analysis. And if you apply it reasonably, you can decide whether or not something is a security or a, a commodity. So the, the US uses, in edge cases, the Howey test to evaluate mm-hmm. whether or not something is a security. Now, that wasn't always the case. And there's actually a minority point of view in the United States called the risk capital test. California has the risk capital test as well as some states. And that, that takes a wider view of what a security is. Basically, are you putting putting your money at risk in something speculative? And most of the time they'll say yes, that, that's a security. But that, that's not the that wasn't the federal law. The federal law was Howie. Now, what in my opinion the SEC is doing is going beyond its jurisdiction, going beyond its mandate, going beyond the case law and attempting to widen the definition of a security beyond what Congress had in mind and beyond what the courts have allowed. Not only is that bad just because it's inherently bad, but it's bad because it's taking jurisdiction or eating the jurisdiction or competing with jurisdiction of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, okay, which is the... Mm lesser known but still very important agency in the United States that regulates commodities. And notice that the name is commodities it's not Commodities Commission. It's Commodities Futures Trading Commission. So it's specifically its mandate for enforcement is commodity futures and commodity markets. It's not passing judgment on generalized real-time commodity sales. so if, if if a token is a commodity and I just sell it to you without making a future contract and it's a fair transaction, there's there's not really a problem. It's only really a pro you don't have to register the sale, like you do with the security or find an mm-hmm. exclusion when by broadening this definition of security and making it unclear and making everything a security it's legally wrong and it's policy wrong and it's clearly motivated by certain interests, attempting to undermine this industry and buy time so that they can get their retirement in place yeah. before the dollar crashes. And there you go. They're destroying the U.S. in the process, or they're, they're severely damaging. And the and the U just to finish mm. up and the UAE is a good counter example, and Switzerland is a good counter example. You can actually yes. go to the regulator, especially in Switzerland, and say, "Is this a security? What kind of token is this?" And they will give you their opinion, and then you know what to do.
0: Okay, I'm, I'm gonna- rant rant over. <laughs> no, it's good rant. What's going to happen with the dollar? Uh so.
1: Ever since we went off the gold standard under Nixon, I think that was 73, um, people have been singing about the death of the dollar. Mm. And when inflation happened in the 70s, we were in this Malthusian crisis where by 1981, it would cost a million dollars to get a cup of coffee. And you know, <laughs> it, was, it was all going to be the Weimar Republic. And the Arabs were going to own the world and blah, 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 blah. And everyone should buy silver and gold now. I'm I, I old enough to remember that. And my dad actually fell for some of that, bought all the silver and you know, and gold and silver just trolled along for 30, 40 years. And, uh, and so people have been predicting the death of the dollar for an extremely long time now, just cause something hasn't happened yet. And it's been predicted over time. That doesn't mean it's not actually going to happen this time. You, you can't get, you can't put it on your blinders. Things do change by definition. The, um, the dollar. The way the doc, every fiat currency is an artificial contract that we all choose to believe and has the power of law because and we choose to do believe it and it has the power of the law because it's generally a useful idea. Yeah, right? you, you you need to have a way of keeping an account and exchanging value and paying people and all that stuff. You need a metric somehow. You can't trade eggs for, for, for arrowheads every time you want to do business. You can't barter mm-hmm. every single time. So you need money. The, and fiat is potentially a useful source of money if the monetary and fiscal policy behind it is reliable yes but what inevitably happens over time is it's not reliable okay there's there's no hundred year old currency that's held its value over time because what inevitably happens is that we steal from the future to buy political consensus in the present that's because the people who aren't born yet don't have a vote and you gotta keep, you gotta stay in office because if you stay, can't stay in office, you can't do those good other things. So even independent banks, you know, that are supposed to be above this all, eventually let the value of their currency slide over time through inflation. And the less independent they are, or the worse monetary policy you have, or the worse fiscal policy you have, the more accelerated this process is. What the U.S. has done since we went up the gold standard is we went from a pretty restrained monetary policy and restrained fiscal policy to complete insanity. And that's what happens when you don't have something tied to another asset like gold, the temptation eventually takes over. And the U S is, it just is inevitable. And the U S does not have economic activity that matches its dollar output right now. And it's, we're, we're using all these accounting games and all of this, this laughable stuff, like controlling that, you know, all the, uh, the fact that the dollar, that oil is mostly priced in the dollar and people are mostly trading in the dollar. We're using all this. We're using the fact that the U S is relatively secure compared to the rest of the world. It's just, all, it's just buying time. Absolutely. And, and China and Russia and other revisionist countries, it used to be that Russia was like, "Ha, we're gonna get you the dollar." The U.S. is gonna break up the dollar's gonna crash. Well, of course they said that because you know they, they're politically motivated to say that. And if you look at Russia, it's a basket case. Mm. But and but China w- was playing the long game because they have so many of their assets in dollars. They were trying to gently wean off the dollar. But things are accelerating now because they've seen the dollar weaponized because of the war, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. They're they're seeing how the wire system and the transfer system is under the control of the U.S. They're they're seeing that. You know, it, it, provides a scary political advantage to the U S. So all these countries, even ones that aren't necessarily anti U S like India, it needs a potential mm. friend of the U S or an actual friend is tired of this. They don't want this weird country with this weird politics and it's people that don't work and, and you know, rights on the street, determining its fiscal policy. So it's, it's, it's gonna happen slowly. If things happen slowly and then they happen all at once, that's what's gonna happen Absolutely. In dollars, they can get off slowly and then all at once. And when it happens all at
0: once, it's gonna be too late. We're going to talk about Bitcoin in a minute. I got another question, but, uh, Lynn Alden, sure. who's one of the really awesome Bitcoin sort of speakers and analysts said on the, what Bitcoin did podcast the other day about, hmm. yeah, Bitcoin gets, uh, uh, some slack because it's, you know, so volatile. Um, and obviously currencies are especially the major ones like, you know, the dollar, the, and the euro are a whole lot less volatile, but the system is is a mess, you know, and it and this, you know, printing money and hyperinflation and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Whereas Bitcoin, yeah, it's 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 kind of a little bit uh, all over the place in in its and uh, its price bouncing, but the system is solid for Bitcoin because it's decentralized because it's not controlled by anyone and you know like i always say who do you trust some politicians you know um in 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 washington or computer code that is you know immutable let, let, let me give you a cute answer it's not that bitcoin's volatile against
1: the dollar it's that the dollar is volatile against bitcoin yeah okay bitcoin is being emitted at Whatever it is now five for every 10 minutes or two and a half i forget you know whatever the, whatever the pre-habiting amount is it, it's when you wrap your head around that this is the objective measure and things should be measured against it then it looks far less volatile one bitcoin is equal to one bitcoin yeah there's only going to be you know however many 21 million of them ever and maybe that number is dropping because things get lost you know a lot of bitcoin's been lost and will never be retrieved and so, yes, these spastic currencies, like the dollar, like the Euro, like, you know, the ruble, maintain some consistency against each other, but they're all losing or being, or gyrating against Bitcoin. And, and, and of course, people aren't speculating on Bitcoin. They're speculating on the idea that the dollar might hold or might not
0: hold its value. Do you think that Bitcoin will become the world's reserve currency? No. Um, it's,
1: it has a role, but I think it's a real stretch to say it's going to be the world's reserve currency. Okay. That's a, that's a very nice idea. Yeah. Um, That's a, that's a libertarian. I don't want to say fantasy because that's a little harsh, but that's a libertarian (laughs) Fantasy. <laughs> well, it's the, it's, yeah.
0: You know, it's the Bitcoin maxi view, but I think there's significant hurdles to get over. And I'm a big believer, but, you know, we start needing to using it as an everyday currency first. And we're no, just No, no, no. Know you know,
1: I, I don't see... Look, the, the, it, the Bitcoin lives... We started to talk about this. Bitcoin lives on the energy network. It lives huh. on the internet. It lives on technology. We can fool ourselves all day long, but ultimately, government provides those things, okay? If the world breaks down into like a, you know, to, to Shiba Island and IBM State and Microsoft this, we're all in a lot more trouble than we are now. If we kind of like go into this corporate mercenary-based, you know, cyberpunk world. The, the, that, that's not where we should be headed. It, it looks good when you play cyberpunk 2077, but it, in real life, it'd be terrible. Okay, we, we, need, we, we do need government. Okay, you can argue as the form of that government and whether it should be centralized or decentralized, but you need something, and that government will only function if it has revenue. It can make revenue by printing money. It can make money by money through taxation, either direct or indirect. It can make money through corporate, uh, state-owned enterprises, which you have places like you know, Saudi Arabia has Aramco. Um, the, it, you know, you, taxes are the price you pay for civilization. I think Churchill said. So uh, these governments, in order to do what they do, they're going to have a monopoly, or near monopoly on the legal use of violence and, it, and probably should. Okay, I don't want private policemen. I, I want someone who has some kind of public duty, public responsibility. Sure. And so because they have a monopoly or near monopoly on violence, they have the physical ability to opt out of making the Bitcoin the official global currency. Maybe it is, will it have an sh- extremely strong unofficial role. I hope so. I, I mm-hmm. think it's a great way to keep governments honest. You know, the, the, the crypto is a threat to existing systems that are inflation and fiat and tax-based. It's a, it's a way of, you know, presenting a, a nonstop alternative. But are we, it's really going to be the global currency? I doubt
0: it. I really no. doubt it. Um, let's talk about the energy debate. We were talking about this a little while ago. Uh, something yeah. I feel quite passionate about. And I've got screamed at or you know uh in the comments on some online thing trying to try and explain this this is one of the problems uh and 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 maybe it's a feature but you know bitcoin is not the easiest to understand in a five-minute conversation i always say trying to convert someone to a bitcoiner is like someone to change getting someone to change their religion it's not going to happen overnight they need to go on a you know self-proclaimed journey of discovery on their own but as you can go so deep in the rabbit hole. I mean, I just first discovered Bitcoin in 2016, and you know, went and got so many people into it, and and still mm. now, I'm still listening to the podcast and watching the YouTube videos, and still learning more and more and more. Um, but got absolutely slighted the other day by well, no one important. Um, you know, trying to say oh. that the the <laughs> that the wow. energy debate was um, was wow. was 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 not as it seems.
1: Well, they're important enough to lead us to a good conversation. So there you exactly. go. Let's give them a little bit of credit. So look, 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 you raised two interesting ideas. Okay. Let me, let me address the first one, even though it's not directly your question. So I, I believe, look, I, I have my private clients supporting my life in order that I can publicly educate and advocate for crypto and for blockchain. So there's, we need to reach our audience and you can do it through a megaphone like youtube or writing you can also do it one-on-one I, I i strongly believe in what i call the johnny Appleseed approach to crypto adoption which is when i meet random people and i just i did this in argentina i, I do this everywhere when i meet random people okay i have them install a wallet on their phone or their computer and i'll send them say 25 dollars worth of bitcoin yeah Right. And I, I had them physically go through that exercise and recognize the fact that they didn't have to put in their ID, they didn't have to do KYC, they didn't have to ask anyone's the mm-hmm. permission, they didn't even have to put in their name. And they just got $25 mm-hmm. worth of Bitcoin from a complete stranger that they met eating asado in Argentina. <laughs> then, s- suppose I met um, a couple, you know, I give it to the husband. Then I have the wife install the, the wallet and I have the husband transfer 10 of those dollars or 15 of those dollars, depending on their relationship. From him <laughs> to her. So they get, they, they get the experience of receiving Bitcoin and transmitting Bitcoin. The, the, there's lots of, I don't, I can't name the studies, but there's lots of human experience showing, you know, there, there's I hear and I forget. I see and I remember. I do and I understand. Okay. I hear yeah. and I forget. I see and I remember. I do and I understand. The, the way to have someone grok something, to use a Heinlein term, is to have them do it. Okay. when they do it, the brain will fill in the gaps. Maybe not immediately, but later. So the it's extreme, the Johnny Appleseed approach is to have people install wallets and receive a little bit of Bitcoin. Then they have it. Then it's not hypothetical anymore. It's not words. Then you can backfill in. Hey, what actually happened? I've I've had a bunch of these conversations. So what I'd encourage you to do, you know, depending on how generous you feel, like you don't have to. The problem is, you know, when you get low bitcoin amounts, the fees get expensive. The fees, but, yeah, I
0: know. No, but it's a but, great you know, idea.
1: If, if you're getting a moderate windfall, th- th- this is an extremely effective tool, and people are grateful. And it opens up the conversation, and it's not mm-hmm. hostile. And you know, it's they don't glaze over because they they just got money. I mean, who doesn't
0: want to receive money? Sure, absolutely. But I I think as you said when you explain to people that bitcoin is completely decentralized completely trustless permissionless there's with self-custody no one can take it away from you you know yes you have the added responsibility of keeping your keys there but you know another friend of mine said to me when i learned that bitcoin was the bank of the unbankable you know for millions in in places like africa i mean you know i'm here in brazil okay and are you? Uh, yeah, I'm in Brazil. Yeah, I've been, I've been here oh. for a little while. Uh, yeah. I didn't even um, know that. Okay. Fantastic. <laughs> so uh, an awful lot of people here do not have bank accounts. But the Brazilian no. government created their own, I, I hate to say central bank digital currency, but it's very, very similar. It's a super simple app. It's called PIX, okay? And you can use it for absolutely everything, anywhere. And you can just, I mean... I could be stopped at traffic and some guy could come up and try and sell me strawberries and I can pay, you know, with this digital currency. It's not on the blockchain, but it's still the same thing. It's digital. It's digital, it's digital. but it's not decentralized. And, no. you know, but they, they got this to like 200 million users in like two years. And sometimes it has a hundred million transactions in a day. It's incredible. But there, and we can get into when you come back the next time, we can get into CBDCs and all of that sort of stuff. But when people really understand Bitcoin and what it is, I I just talked about it it yesterday. We we can do it now if you want. (laughs) uh, Unfortunately, I've got to go because I got another one. But but, but let's go into it. But I mean, that's it. And I think you're absolutely right. Everyone who is, you know, on board like us should be finding another person every couple of days and and, and sending them a a small amount. With Lightning, you know, it's super quick. It's super slow. I think there's things that have to be solved there. But um, I'm certainly a big advocate. You know, like yourself, I want to enable my day job to go out there and, and advocate for crypto, blockchain, Web3, and everything like that, because it's something I'm super passionate about. Well. I, I applaud you. And, and let, let me
1: at least I And you. Oh, thank you. Let me address, at least address the point you just made. So it's great that Brazil has that. Mm. And it's it's great that in China, you, you don't need to use cash and you can pay with WeChat and all this other stuff. Mm. You can be sure that the comp- competitive threat being posed by cryptocurrencies prompted those governments... Mm. to take that approach mm. because and they prompted banks to you know to through Wise and Revolut and the rest of them mm. to up their service and not take 20 years and $5000 to send a wire because there, there's a competitive threat and competition's good so even if crypto coins even if bitcoin doesn't become the world currency the fact this is what i mean the fact it's there and things like it are there and gaining in popularity Puts pressure on existing systems to A, keep them more honest and B, make them better. So we help humanity by making an alternative, a competitive threat to lazy institutionalized forces. And then they can have an opportunity to to have a renaissance and become better. If if the world, if this perfectly reliable fiat. (laughs) <laughs> that doesn't inflate and does everything we're talking about and works on your phone and,
0: or chip in your head. Uh, fine. Yell at, Let's I'm good. do it. Let's do it. Yeah. But that's not going to happen. Amazing. No, Gordon, it's not going to happen. <laughs> thank you so much for joining me. I'm really glad that, uh, as of this morning, we reconnected after a while and, and here we are. Super. Um, uh, I, I, I look forward to having you back on the podcast, being on yours and, uh, yeah, everyone, Go follow Gordon. I'll, uh, I'll put his socials on the screen because he does some really awesome stuff and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks. Appreciate it. Okay, stay there.